How did Jeff Bezos realize you could sell anything on the internet? Why did Bill Gates create Control-Alt-Delete? How did Synchronized Swimming prepare Christine Lagarde for international politics? What made Bob Iger bet big on Marvel? And what inspired Diane von Furstenberg to create the wrap dress? On The David Rubenstein Show, peer-to-peer conversations, I uncover the untold stories of the world's most successful leaders. Listen now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to For the Ages, a history podcast presented by the New York Historical Society and hosted by David Rubenstein. Join us as he deftly explores the rich and complex history of the United States with some of the nation's foremost historians and creative thinkers, because history matters. Hello, I'm David Rubenstein, and today we're going to be in conversation with Frederick Logoval who is a professor at the Kennedy School at Harvard. He is also a Pulitzer Prize winning historian and the author of a new book, JFK, Coming of Age in the American Century. Professor Logoval, thank you very much for being with us today. Oh, it's my pleasure to be with you. So I'm sure you have heard this question before, but I can't resist asking you. Uh, There seem to be more books written about JFK than virtually any president in our history other than Abraham Lincoln. So why did you think the world needed another book on JFK? Well, there are a couple of reasons, I guess, I would give. Uh, the first is just an interest in, in, in JFK and his life and the fact that he lived through such an extraordinary period, 1917 to 1963, the really, the, as I see it, the kind of the, the early years of the American century. So I had an interest in this. But, you know, the second reason is maybe surprising, which is that, as you say, we have endless books on, on the Kennedys. We have lots of books on particular aspects of JFK's uh, administration. The Cuban Missile Crisis has a literature all onto its own, of course, the assassination, etc. What we don't have, I think, we don't have a lot of biographies, strange as that may sound. Uh, and in particular, what I wanted to do here is to look closely at his early years, which I think are really consequential, and we'll talk about those, I'm sure, uh, using the, the incredible resources we now have available uh, at the Kennedy Library and, um, and elsewhere. So what was the biggest surprise to you in doing all the research? You probably had some preconceived notions. You've written a bit about him before. I think what surprised me the most would be the degree to which he was serious Uh, had a deep interest in the pressing questions of the world, and in particular in foreign policy. I think I had entered this project believing, like many people do, that he was kind of a playboy, that he didn't really get serious about things until he was in the House of Representatives, maybe not even then, maybe it's when he's in the Senate, that he finally decides, okay, I got to make something of myself. I think it surprised me that you know, at Choate, his prep school, um, there are flashes of this more serious interest in world affairs, you know, from a young age, because he's sickly, he's reading Winston Churchill, huge fat volumes, maybe even as a pre-teenager. And then continuing at Harvard, he's engaged by these issues. That, I think, that surprised me. And maybe second, I would say the fact that he was willing to some degree to separate himself from his father earlier than I thought in terms of his worldview, uh, his political um, philosophy, and so forth. That, that, um, that difference between them surprised me. So he's born in May of 1917. 
Uh, is he born in a hospital or in a house? He's born at the house on Beale Street, the first, um, the first family home. Now, think about this. I always wondered, um, there's a wealthy family. Why were, was he not born in a hospital? Were people, yeah. even wealthy people, were born in houses in those days? I think, that, I mean, two things. Yes, I think they were more often born at home, uh, even when they were wealthy. And the second thing is that Joe Kennedy, his father, had not really made his fortune yet. I think they were relatively comfortable in Brookline, but the the great fortune that Joe Kennedy built really begins to take off uh, in the early and mid-20s. So by now, Jack is, what, three or four or five years old, and then they do move to steadily larger homes. But even then, the younger siblings tend to be more, born more often than not at, at home. Now, Joe Kennedy was one of the richest people in the United States. At some point, people said he's one of the 10 richest people in the United States. I think in your book, you say he had the equivalent of $3 billion in today or something like that. Yeah. So what, how did he make so much money so quickly uh, in what business or what was his skill set as a businessman? Well, it's, 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 it's a remarkable thing, I think, that, that this guy who was a mediocre student really all the way through, including at Harvard, uh, as you say, in short order began to accumulate vast wealth. I think he had a good head for numbers. He had a, a lack of sentiment. And you put those two things together and you have somebody who has the potential, it seems to me, to be really good on Wall Street. Sure enough, he was. I think he made most of his money uh, as an investor. Interestingly, he had a turn in Hollywood as a producer, made a pretty good chunk of money. And then later, this is mostly post-World War II, he moved into real estate, especially in, in midtown Manhattan, and proved really shrewd uh, there as well. Now, Joe Kennedy uh, became ambassador to England. We'll talk about that later. But his real goal, I thought, was to be president of the United States for himself, not his son. So was that ever realistic? And what would have made him think that in those days, a Catholic businessman could have become president of the United States? Yeah, you know, I, I think that he believed, and I don't think he was alone in this, that if the 20s were the decade of, uh, was the decade of, 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 of Wall Street, of making money, I think he sensed, especially with the onset of the Depression, that the 30s were going to be the, was going to be the decade of, of government, of politics. And I, he wanted in on that game. I think it's why he hitched his wagon to Franklin Roosevelt. I, I, I write about this and about their rather complicated relationship. And I do think he believed that if Roosevelt chose not to run for a third term, so now we're talking 1938, 39, 40, when he's ambassador to Britain, Joe Kennedy sincerely felt, I could be the nominee. I think he probably sensed that it's a bit of a long shot, even if FDR doesn't run. But there were others, you know, there, this was speculated about in the press, that Joe Kennedy could be a legitimate candidate for president. Um, and then I think what, what sunk the idea was the fact, of course, first, first and foremost, that Roosevelt did run. But secondly, that the ambassadorship turned out to be really quite disastrous. Uh, and it scuttled his chances. And then I think he, after that, thought, no, it's going to be my sons. It's going to be Joe Jr., perhaps Jack, who will, you know, carry this, this ambition forward. So when John Kennedy was growing up, he was, uh, he had a lot of illnesses as a young boy. Is that right? He, oh, he did. I mean, he, the, the, the stories are legion. The, the evidence is overwhelming about the number of days he spent, for example, at Choate, his prep school, in the infirmary, 
probably more days in the infirmary than any other boy in his in his year. And then uh, at Harvard, and even before then, uh, you know, when he's still uh, pre-prep school in the elementary grades, um, he is sick a, a great deal of the time. Many of the maladies were ill-diagnosed, and I certainly couldn't get to the bottom of some of them. But the point is, yeah, he was um, he was ill a lot of the time. So he went from Choate. He actually did not go to Harvard. He went to Princeton uh, initially. And then I guess because of an illness, he had to drop out. And eventually he decides he will go to his father's school, Harvard. But when he's at Harvard, was he a distinguished athlete? Was he a great scholar? Uh, I think he was neither in the early years at Harvard. He, he neither excelled, and this was to his frustration, he did not excel on the athletic field. He wanted in particular to shine in, in football. Um, and it didn't really happen. He was too his 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 build was wrong for it. He was too too skinny. He had a sort of willowy um, frame, if you will. Um, um, he he was he succeeded. He was good. He was an excellent swimmer, uh, and so he competed uh, more effectively on the on the Harvard swim team. But he also wasn't a particularly good student. I think it's fair to say, or at least he didn't um, stand out uh, in his freshman and sophomore year. It's really in his junior year that professors begin to say, ah, wait a minute. This is somebody who has got in, you know, great potential, maybe more so than his older brother, who's, who's, who's ahead of him in, in the class of 1938, two classes ahead. Uh, and then especially Jack's, Jack Kennedy's senior year, when this potential really emerges. Well, during his senior year, he wrote a senior thesis uh, called Why England Slept. Uh, he obviously had some help to do that, uh, got access to a lot of people because his father was pretty prominent. But was it that good a book such that it would become a, a bestseller? Um, a college uh, senior thesis usually doesn't become a bestselling book. It certainly doesn't. I think it's an accomplished piece of work. I, look, I, I examine, it in, uh, examine it in some depth uh, in my book, uh, and I look at its origins. Uh, I'm convinced that it was Jack's own work in terms of the writing of this thing. I don't think he anticipated that it would sell us as well as it did. I think that's in part because the timing was perfect. It's a book about British appeasement and the failure to prepare, as, as he saw it, for the Nazis. People all of a sudden want an and wanted an explanation for why the French uh, were defeated. Uh, how did we get to this stage? Kennedy's book filled a, a, a need. So he graduates and um, he wants to go into the military service to fight in World War II, but he's a fairly sickly person, has lots of ailments. How did he ever pass a physical? And why did he want to go into the military, not just in the military, but he wanted to be in combat, which some people don't like to do? Yeah, you know, this is a really interesting part of the story. And I hear, I think we have to give credit to his father because Joe Kennedy wanted desperately for the United States to keep out of the war. I think this was true before the European War began, but even after the European War began, Joe Kennedy insisted uh, upon uh, American uh, neutrality and also didn't want his sons to serve. In fact, that was one of the reasons why he was so opposed to U.S. intervention. And so the fact that he uh, not only uh, allowed his sons to serve, but in fact helped them to get into the service, I think is, is quite remarkable. And in Jack's case, it was really his father's 
doing, or at least substantially his father's doing, that got him into the Office of Naval Intelligence. This is shortly before um, Pearl Harbor. And then later uh, helps to, in certain ways at least, if, even if it's mostly Jack's own doing, helps him to uh, get into uh, combat or at least get into um, active service, if you will, in a war theater in the South Pacific. So he gets to be the uh, commander of a PT ship, PT boat, which are relatively modest-sized boats and not the most well-constructed, you could argue. How did he manage to survive a Japanese ship uh, ramming right into and splitting in half a PT-109? You know, the, the, it's, it's, it's an amazing story. The fact that uh, this boat is um, split in two effectively after this ramming in early August of 1943, um, and only two, two crew members uh, are killed is, is, is quite astonishing. Um, I think certainly he uh, must accept part of the blame for why this, this PT boat, the very, the very advantage of, it, of which was its speed, um, why he allowed the boat to be rammed is at least I think partly on him. But it's also true that his boat was not radar equipped. It's, it was a moonless, uh, it was a very dark uh, moonless night. Uh, and this boat appeared out of nowhere. To the best that I can uh, determine, he had six or seven or eight seconds, somewhere in there, to try to get out of the way. Uh, and that would have been a tall order for anybody. He didn't. And as a result, this collision uh, occurred. So when John F. Kennedy comes back from the war and his, some of his uh, ailments are uh, healed a bit, he decides to run for Congress uh, from a seat in Boston, a place he really hadn't lived, uh, though he rented an apartment there. Was he a good candidate from the start? Was he a person who knew how to run and really vibrant and connected with people or not? He wasn't, I don't think he, when he ran for Congress in 1946, uh, I don't think he was a particularly good candidate. He certainly was not a very effective speaker. He tended to speak much too quickly. Uh, he tended to speak at a pretty high pitch. Later on, he was able to lower that. Um, and when he was on the turf, uh, if you will, of foreign policy, he was pretty comfortable. But whenever he strayed from that to talk about domestic politics or to talk about what was of biggest interest to the constituents in the 11th district of Massachusetts, he got nervous and he wasn't particularly effective. On the other hand, what's evident from his earliest days is that when he was in smaller groups, when he could connect with people in their homes or, or at least before uh, smaller audiences, People liked him. There was something about even young JFK that people took to, that voters initially in the district um, really liked. Maybe his very kind of reserve, because he had a certain reticence. Maybe that worked to his advantage. The very fact that he was a little awkward maybe worked for him. Well, he also had a uh, charming way with women in terms of that uh, shock of hair he had, and he was seen as you know somebody that was an eligible bachelor and. I'm sure that helped. Uh, would you agree? Oh, I, I, there's no question that it, that it helped in that first campaign. And then also when he ran for the Senate in 52, I think his aides quickly saw that it was especially female um, audiences, female voters who uh, were drawn to him, some of them uh, sort of out of a maternal thing, 
um, and others, uh, you know, who, who wanted to marry him. There was a, there was a charisma there there that was evident, I think, from an early point, and the campaigns tried to take advantage of that. So he's elected in '46, along with uh, another person named Richard Nixon, also elected that year. Re-elected in '48, re-elected in '50, the same year that Richard Nixon becomes. Uh, well, I guess Richard Nixon is elected to the Senate in 1950. And then Richard Nixon goes on the ticket in 52 with Eisenhower. But it is generally thought that Eisenhower is going to win. But nonetheless, uh, John F. Kennedy says, I'm going to take on an incumbent Republican senator, Henry Cabot Lodge Jr. Uh, was that a foolhardy mission in some, the view of some people? Because Lodge was seen as pretty invulnerable. And um, why did Kennedy decide to do it? Why couldn't he wait? I think a lot of people in 1952 thought, are you crazy? You're going to take on Lodge? Um, this will be, uh, you know, an impossible uh, campaign for you. But I think he felt, JFK felt and his father felt and, and other close associates, including people who had worked with him in the house, that in fact, they could do this. Partly because, and this was the secret of John F. Kennedy's success as a politician. I think all the way through. He started earlier, he worked harder than his opposition. He had started little by little in the late 40s while in the House to accept any and all speaking engagements around Massachusetts. And so he was working really hard to get name recognition, to become familiar with the state. And they felt in 52, we can do this. Uh, and even though he and Lodge were formidable, they're actually pretty interesting in that they're quite similar in a lot of ways. He succeeds ultimately, even in a Republican year. And even when Eisenhower wins Massachusetts by a wide margin, JFK ekes out this really narrow victory against, against Lodge. So as a senator, um, did he have a lot of a legislative accomplishments such that you would say this man should be president of the United States because he's such a good legislator? I don't think he was a legislator in the way that his brother Ted Kennedy would become in the last couple of decades of, of, of Ted's life. Uh, he would, of course, become known as one of the great legislators of all time. Jack Kennedy was never that, uh, you know, at any point during his Senate years. I do think, though, that from an early point, so he's, he enters the Senate in 53, I think that his colleagues could see, yeah, he's a little wet behind the ears, he's a bit young, he's a little untried, but I think he got respect from them because he was knowledgeable, he knew his stuff on the issues, uh, he was respectful, he had a sense of the sort of hierarchy of the Senate, uh, so he knew that he needed to bide his time, he knew that you know, he needed to, to, to treat his, his elders in the Senate with, with, with due respect. So he, he had a good reputation in the Senate, even though I wouldn't say he was particularly notable for his legislative achievement, achievements, not at all. So he did write a book uh, while he was in the hospital. I should ask you about this. He was very ill. And in fact, he was given the last rites of the Catholic Church at one point yeah. because uh, he had a very bad back ailment. Uh, that back ailment uh, led to a complicated uh, operation. But while he was recovering, he writes a book called Profiles in Courage. Um, did he really write that book? Some people say he really didn't, that his brilliant legislative assistant, Ted Sorensen, really wrote it. Yeah, it's, it's a controversial issue about, about the, the authorship of that book. Um, and I deal with this at some length. Uh, I, I'm comfortable in, in, in concluding 
that uh, JFK's own involvement in the writing of that book was absolutely crucial. Ted Sorensen was enormously gifted, but Ted Sorensen was in his mid-20s. He did not have even remotely the kind of knowledge of American history and of Senate history. The book is really a profile of, of senators who, in JFK's view, showed political courage in defying, in some cases, the, the wishes of their constituents or their party or their region for what they thought was best for the, for the country. Uh, Sorensen didn't have that kind of knowledge. So what I think is the case is that the book's arguments, the book's architecture, its organization, is substantially uh, Kennedy's. And the introduction and the conclusion which I think are the most interesting parts of the book for us, are also substantially JFK's. The, uh, the case studies, the middle part of the book, I think, is mostly Sorensen. And uh, they also had input from um, a few professors. So in 1952, um, Eisenhower wins the presidency, beats Adlai Stevenson. And something that's hard to understand today, the Democrats renominated Adlai Stevenson two, uh, four years later against the same person who already beaten him. Yeah. But uh, Stevenson, uh, former governor of Illinois at that point, uh, gets the nomination and he can't decide uh, who he should pick as his vice president. There were several people. So he opens it up to the convention and says, anybody uh, that the convention wants, I'll accept. Why did John Kennedy think that he had a chance to be the vice presidential nominee? And how did that effort go to get that nomination? Yeah, you know, his, his, his father basically said, Jack, please don't do this. He used more salty language than that, but he basically said, uh, Stevenson's going to lose. You will be blamed for this. If you are the vice presidential nominee, they'll blame you, Jack, because of your, your Catholicism. Don't do this. Here again, as in so many other instances, Jack is willing to defy his father. I think he wants to do it partly out of a sense of competition. All the discussion in the spring of 56 and then in the summer, including during the convention, is, of course, about who's going to be the nominee. He wants in on this game, and he's talked about as a leading contender. Um, and I think he also believes that if he's going to have success as a future, including presidential candidate, he should be in this battle. I think lucky for him, he loses a very narrow um, convention uh, vote to Estes Kefauver. Uh, and it was a very dramatic moment, uh, as, as dramatic as we've had in any uh, political convention, I think, over the last 70 or 80 years. He loses it, and it was probably the best outcome for him in terms of the future, because he wasn't saddled with that defeat that then, that then followed in November. So the remaining time we have, let's talk about the personal life of John F. Kennedy, because you write a fair bit about it. Um, he was, uh, when he's a House member, and when he was uh, in the Senate initially, uh, he was um, a bachelor. Yes, correct. He, um, you know, was a person who was well known for seeing a lot of attractive women. But when did he first meet the woman that became his wife? And was it love at first sight? So he met uh, Jacqueline Bouvier uh, at a dinner party in the spring of 1951 at the home of Charles Bartlett, a journalist and his wife, Martha. Um, and um, they then became more serious in 1952, although they didn't see each other very much because of his Senate campaign. Um, and, you know, family members say, and, and I'm not going to uh, dispute them, that he was absolutely smitten with Jackie from the, the beginning. And I do think that they, that they were serious from an early point. I, I also think, you know, they were quite different people 
they had also some interesting similarities that I think were ultimately really important. But I think, as in many relationships, it took a little time for the love to really develop. I think there was mutual attraction, however, from the get-go, from, from her part. She liked his, his sense of humor, his interest in books and history, his looks. Uh, he liked some of the same things uh, about her. They had a, a particular shared interest, I think, in, in books and in poetry um, that, that mattered in those early, early months. So at some point, it's become clear that he has a disease called Addison's disease, which is a disease of the adrenaline glands, and it can be fatal. How did he deal with that during his lifetime? How did he treat it? You know, the Addison's disease was not diagnosed until 1947. So this is early after, uh, after the war. Uh, it's when he's now a, a freshman member of the house. And it's actually a British physician who says, you know what you've got? You've got Addison's disease. He had shown symptoms before. I don't think we will, will know ever when precisely one can say he developed Addison's. He took cortisone for it. There were various remedies that were coming online that would help Addison's sufferers lead a much better life than in the past. So uh, we have to wait seven more years to get your next book, I guess. So can you give us a teaser about it? Uh, what are you most looking forward to re researching and writing about with the uh, remainder of his life? Well, you know, I want to do it much more quickly than that. Um, but it's going to be interesting because the first volume is 39 years. This, this second volume is only going to be seven years. But of course, a great deal happens. So it'll be the campaign. Uh, it'll be the thousand days in the White House. And it'll be the, uh, the terrible uh, development in, in Dallas in November of 1963. What I want to do is continue to tell the story of his life, but also the story of America and its rise to, to, to incomparable power. Think about the fact that in 63, when he's killed, the United States is really the greatest military and economic power that the world has ever seen. So I want to trace that story in those final seven years. And of course, civil rights comes online, the space race, the prospect of nuclear Armageddon, which of course will be um, exemplified by the Cuban Missile Crisis, Vietnam. Uh, Vietnam, which I, I already write about in volume one, is going to loom much larger um, and, you know, the marriage to Jackie, the parenthood, they have children, lots that I need to do, but I'm, uh, I'm eager to get into it. Well, we've been in conversation with Professor Frederick Logoval of Harvard Kennedy School. Professor, thank you very much for an interesting conversation about your new book. Well, thank you so much for having me. On behalf of the New York Historical Society, thank you for joining us for another episode of For the Ages, a history podcast hosted by David Rubenstein. We hope you enjoyed it and come back for more. Thanks for your support. You can share your thoughts at public.programs at nyhistory.org.